Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Series 2 of Not Another Sales Podcast. I'm Chris Hatfield, aka Not Another Sales Guy. I'm a sales and mindfulness coach, trainer, consultant, and speaker. I work with corporate sales teams and leaders, along with startup business owners passionate about what they do, but wanting to up their sales game. My main mission is helping us all become more mindful of how we elevate our performance, perspective, and potential. If you want to know more, then look me up on LinkedIn. Chris Hatfield, always happy to chat. So if you're new to Not Another Sales Podcast, here's what to expect. It's aimed at giving you insights into how you can be successful within the world of sales, whether that's your career or your own business. We go deeper into the thought process and mindset needed for success when selling and when running a business, not just the skills and output. So if you're looking for a podcast with a difference that starts with the mind in mind, this is for you. So enough about me, let's get started. On today's episode, I'm joined by Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman. Matt is a neuroscientist whose focus is bridging the gap between science and business, and Prince is a neuromarketeer whose focus is on the ethical applications of neuromarketing in the consumer world. Together, they have co-authored the book, Blindsight, a book that covers neuromarketing and consumer psychology. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about what makes prospects say yes, discussing do customers really buy based on logic? how 90% of our decision-making process is subconscious, and what people in the world of sales can take away from neuroscience to help them sell more effectively and provide a better experience for their customers. So if you want to gain a deeper understanding of what makes customers say yes, this episode is for you. So sit back and enjoy. Matt and Prince, welcome. How are we doing? Good. Doing well, Chris. Right. Thanks so much for having us. Really good, thank you. I'm good. Thank you for joining me on an episode of Not Another Sales Podcast and uh, really looking forward to, to getting your insights and your stories on this topic today. Right on. Absolutely. So for people that are tuning in that might not be familiar with, with yourselves, it'd be great to give them a bit of an introduction and backstory really as to what makes you who you are. So Prince, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Um, my name is Prince Gooman. Uh, I, along with Matt, uh, co-author of Blindsight, uh, The Hidden Ways Marketing Reshapes Your Brain. And uh, I'm a professor at Holt International Business School. We have campuses in, in London and here in the States as well. And uh, my background and how I stumbled across this thing. Um, well, actually, we'll do a short intro and then we'll tell you how this whole thing came about and how it all connects to sales because I think it's really important to see how this thing came about. So I'll, I'll leave it over to Matt for now. Great. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Matt Johnson. I'm a professor, researcher, and also the author, co-author of Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways That Marketing Reshapes Our Brains. Uh, our, our fields, our collective fields right now is consumer neuroscience or neuromarketing. And so my background specifically, I come from academic neuroscience. So I did a, a PhD in neuroscience where I was studying the neural and, and psychological bases of language, communication, and perception. Uh, so I really come at this field from sheer curiosity. That, that's really what drove me here. I'm fascinated with uh, why we do the things we do. I'm fascinated how this amazing organ, the human brain, makes all of this possible without us even noticing that all of these amazing, intricate, complex processes are, are going about. And that's really my orientation to the field. I think that psychology and neuroscience are the most fascinating fields to study because they're a study of ourselves. And I think studying consumer behavior provides a really fascinating lens into the human experience. So my background is, is again, primarily academic. And 
uh, really the moment that crystallized this for me is is when I was finishing my uh, PhD and you're actually given a, a bounded version of your PhD thesis, which is this incredibly dense document of about 180 pages diving into a very, very, very myopic topic. And you have this sort of ceremony where you're given this hardbounded edition of the book and you put it into a specific place of the library. And when I did this, I snuck in a $50 bill into that bounded thesis because I was convinced at the time, and I'm still convinced that no one's ever going to pick this up. And that $50 bill, I guarantee you, is still there today. And, and for me, that is, is really just the perfect distillation of the academic approach to neuroscience, the, the academic approach to psychology. I think that really contrasts with, with Prince's orientation to the field that comes at it much more from a practitioner standpoint. Yeah, to, to sort of piggyback on that, Chris. Um, yeah, Matt's right. You know, I, I, uh, Matt's driven by curiosity. I am too. And Matt's sort of outlet for that was research and getting a PhD. And, and my outlet for that was application. So um, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to grind it out in sales and understand sales. I've been fortunate enough to grind it out in marketing and learn marketing. But I also read the abstracts and the final you know, four-paragraph summary of what's something that Matt worked on as a researcher forever to understand consumer behavior. And I was also fortunate enough to have leadership roles early on in a startup and then early on in a publicly traded company to apply a lot of psychology and neuroscience to marketing, right? So, so for me, it was all about the application, right? So the intricate experiment design, that's cool, but it's not for me. Um, Matt's the Batman, I'm the Robin there. Um, but when it comes to application, I immediately take the insights that Matt works on and apply them to sales and marketing. So that's sort of why uh, we clicked. We clicked because we somehow ended up teaching at the same university and and we ended up teaching a class on neuromarketing. And of course, there's sales is a massive part of that. Communications is a massive part of that. Decision making is a massive part of that. So, um, you know, I think this would be a good point to dissect neuromarketing before we jump into the, uh, the uh, sort of what you had in mind, Chris, if that's a good, if that's a good next step for you. Yeah, I do. Because I think, you know, some people might be listening to this and thinking, which I was mentioning to you before, Get is what is, what is that? So yeah, yeah let's yeah. give it some framing. Yeah. Cool. So uh, neuromarketing, we, we sort of have to stick a step back a, a little bit even and, and talk about what marketing is. And really then a day when you break it down, marketing is trading value, is an exchange of value between consumers and the brand. And this value in its, its simplest, most familiar sense is just an exchange of monetary value. So I'm a consumer, I'm going to buy a pair of Nikes, Nike's going to give me those pair of Nikes. I'm exchanging money for a, a physical good. Um, but this, this trading value uh, analogy, this dynamic can really be used to understand all sorts of marketing. So in the digital sphere, you use Facebook for free, you use Twitter for free, you use LinkedIn for free. We use Zoom largely for free. And we're not necessarily uh, exchanging monetary value for a lot of these, but we're giving up attention, which can be monetized in the digital space, uh, and also a lot of times data. And so this, this trading value dynamic is, is really broad and, and encapsulates all of the activities which fit under this umbrella of marketing. And so when neuromarketing comes in is it does two things. So one, it is the orientation to the field where we're trying to use the cumulative wisdom that we have, have come to learn to be true about the brain, how the brain receives information, how it interprets information, how it makes decisions, a, a neuroscience-informed perspective on answering these very general marketing questions. 
So how do we build a brand? How do we go about designing marketing campaigns? What should our target consumer be and, and what should that look like? So classic marketing questions, but now viewed and, and operated from within the perspective of neuroscience. It's another thing that the second thing which neuromarketing is, it's a very direct approach where you have a very, very specific marketing question. And instead of going about the, the classic way of, of gathering market research data or focus group data, survey data, you're actually gleaning neuroscience-based insights to bring about uh, specific information on a very specific question. So if you are a production house and you're putting out a movie trailer, you want the highest resonance possible from your, your target group, you can do that through consumer groups, you can do that through focus groups. You could also sit for somebody in front of uh, EEG, for example, have uh, EEG-based insights, which clean the, the scalp conductance from, uh, from the brain directly, and, and have that inform questions as to which trailer might be better to release. Actually, have a, a colleague of mine down in Los Angeles who does this with uh, with with uh, movie houses, with production houses. So it's these two things. It's using a neuroscience-based perspective to answer very general questions about marketing, classic questions about marketing. And then when you have very, very specific marketing questions, uh, using very specific neuroimaging techniques to derive insights there. Great. Great. Thank you for that, that insight. I think, you know, for me, Neuro, neuro selling and neuromarketing has been a real interest in the last couple of years. And I think, you know, it's very underutilized and, and understood within the world of sales. And, you know, having done a, a webinar yesterday, as I mentioned, I think a lot of people were like, we need to know more about this. Like, this is really useful. This is, this is the kind of thing that you should get taught because it's, it's the science to, com to complement the art of selling as well. So I suppose one of the things that I love to do on this, on this podcast with guests is kind of tackle different myths or statements or throwaway comments and we, we've done a variety already that i think get misunderstood or might not have, a, have evolved as we have in the world of sales or marketing and 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 linked to that the the one thing that you hear a lot of the time is that everyone thinks that we're quite logic-based decision-making human beings is that everything is based on logic we're rational with everything that we do and people will often say you know customers or buying decisions are based off of logic so i'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as to from, from my understanding, that probably isn't as true as it should be and um, how it might be seen in a bit of a different manner. So um, who wants to take that as a I'll, first? I'll, I'll take the first half of it. I'll take the first half of it because one thing I want to underline is in, in, in trying to dissect what neuromarketing is, decision-making is a single branch in the giant tree that is neuromarketing, right? So we'll go into logic versus emotional-based decision-making. I just want to point that out because sales isn't one thing. And I'm sure you know that, Chris. It's not just communication. It's not just mm -hmm. identifying problems. and present. It, it, there's a lot. It's not just uh, empathy. It's not just comms. It's, it's a lot, right? So same thing with neuromarketing. It's a lot, but we love the decision-making angle because there's been so much research there. So we'll get into it in a second. Um, I just want to point that out. Um, so, I mean, we are not logical decision makers. There's, <laughs> that's the easiest answer, right? We're not logical decision makers. Um, we may think we are. We may have an inner um, uh, emotional reaction or a decision that we justify later with logic. And that simple sentence goes a lot deeper. So I want to, I want to give it over to Matt to sort of understand, uh, to explain a bit of the neuroscience behind decision-making, and then I can bridge it to see how that plans out 
uh, with B2B marketing and sales and, and in general, just the sales process. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, so I, I think one really interesting thing to, to notice here when it comes to logic within consumer decision making is, is logic is involved a lot of the time. It's just not involved at the place we think it is. Logic's often used to justify a decision which was ultimately made via emotional influence and oftentimes a deep-seated intuition which the actual conscious person may not actually have access to. Uh, so my, my favorite example of this is a experiment which was done by Wilson and Nesbaum. This is way back in the 70s and this findings like this have been replicated decades after decades. And what they did is they brought people into a uh, experiment, brought them into a lab, and they had them pick which stockings they liked from an array of stockings. And they chose stockings specifically because nobody in this experiment had really any uh, idea about what makes a good stocking. Nobody was a stocking connoisseur. So you're operating under high uncertainty. And they just told people, just pick whichever stocking you like, whichever one you pick, you get to keep and, and take away. You just have to fill out a brief survey afterwards. So people went in, they picked their stocking. Then they asked the people, well, why did you pick the stocking that you did? And they had different answers. Some people will, I really like the color on this one. Other people said, well, I just, you know, I didn't actually feel it, but I really, you know, the texture, this would be a really, you know, durable stocking, I felt like. And what's interesting is that all of these answers were incorrect. So for whatever reason, us humans have this very strange right side bias. So we default to the right side of a shopping center. Every time we walk in, when we walk into the room, we walk to the right side. And when you're looking at this array of stockings, you have no idea what makes a good stocking. People just default that and pick the stocking on the right. And nobody in this, this post-experiment survey said, oh, I picked it because it was the one on the right. Everybody had their own logical reason, which they layered on top of this decision to help make sense of this decision for them. So we want to see ourselves as logical beings. We want to see our decisions as deliberative and well thought out and informed by good evidence and having good reasons. But when you actually break this down in an experimental setting, Oftentimes, you make a decision off of factors which you weren't even aware of. And then comes the logical step of having to justify this to yourself. So logic is oftentimes involved, but it's, it's used much more in the justification of a decision than actually going into the decision. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, it, we talk about this in the book, right? So your brain, let's go, let's get, let's zero in on just the concept of decision-making, right? Because decision-making, human decision-making can be put into two, two buckets. And we talk about this in the second chapter of Blindsight. Um, and the best way to summarize it is like driving a car, right? Uh, our, our, our cousins in Europe are much better at driving, in, driving a stick or manual and our cousins in the US can't do it, right? Um, but that is, in effect, how the brain works. By default, our brain wants to drive an automatic. It doesn't want to think the law of least mental effort applies here. And there's the automatic mode. Automatic mode is quick. Um, it's, uh, it doesn't deliberate. It makes reactive decisions. Um, it makes automatic decisions. And then there is the manual mode, right? This is actually having to think about analyze, rationalize, and take deliberate decisions, make deliberate decisions, okay? So economists typically are, are, are 
are uh, they're, they're under the belief that we work in manual mode, but that's just not true. And one's not better than the other. It's simply, it's, it's, it depends on the situation. So when you think about sales, one of the things that really changed my perspective on this was being mindful of what the person you are selling to, what mind frame are they in, right? So, um, you know, think about something as simple as real estate versus something as complex as a million dollar SaaS product that you're selling, a giant B2B Salesforce sale, right? Two different but equally important sales, but you have to understand and predict when someone's buying a house, where they are in that process. Um, when they're looking at the house, are they looking at it strictly from manual mode? Are they analyzing the schools? Are they analyzing X, Y, and Z, all these factors? Or is it an emotional place that they're coming from? And you, as a salesperson, you have to adjust and calibrate for that, right? Uh, conversely, if they're trying to find financing and looking to financing terms, that is very much a deliberate manual process. So what can you do as a salesperson to help affect that and move on, right? So, I mean, just based on that little piece there, Chris, I'm curious if that hits and how that, and how that hits, the two different ways of making decisions and how you can optimize for sales. Yeah, it, it does definitely. I think, um, you know, what, what Matt spoke about as well, it rings really true. I think it's known as post-hoc rationalization, isn't it? Where right. you'll, you'll be able to, well, we don't feel as a society that we can accept decisions based on emotion. It just doesn't feel like that's accepted, which is an interesting concept and probably something that we can, we can look to adapt and evolve. So we therefore have to back it up. And I heard this saying once where it's, we buy of emotion and defend it with rational thinking, which is what you were mentioning there, Matt, is, you know, we're so, we're so driven on thinking we can't just say we bought this because we loved it or because of how it made us feel. We have to put some rational thinking in there because that would just be mad. Like how could we be a decision maker and sign off on that? Yeah, I want a Hummer. Yeah. I want a Hummer to survive the zombie apocalypse, but you give me the logical punchline that says the safest vehicle on the road. And I'm like, all right, I'll buy it because of the safest vehicle on the road. But really I bought it because I like a big giant. I don't know. I don't actually like Hummers, but to make that point, you know, you can apply that to a Prius. Same thing. You know, I, I bought it to save the environment, but really, did I? Or was the logical reasoning that it gives me 100,000 miles per gallon, right? Mm. Go ahead, Matt. Didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, <clears throat> no, I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Chris. I mean, it, it absolutely speaks to this very general need for us to see, uh, see ourselves as, as rational creatures. And we do have this uh, very sort of taboo thinking towards the use of emotion in decision making, partly for good reason. If we're acting out of impulse or acting purely out of intuition, uh, lots of, of studies showing that we can be uh, systematically biased in those responses, relying purely on emotion. Uh, but a lot of times we're, we're still operating on emotion and we just use the the, the, the logic to, to justify this uh, a little bit later on. So it's been, uh, if you replace Hummer with jams, uh, this this uh, study has been done where you have people select from an array of jams and they just bias to the right side and then they you know justify it with with whatever uh, qualities of, of jam they think are, are best to whatever the person you know thinks of as as a logical decision there this also has has a lot beyond sales and and as we sort of think about ourselves as a society as well that when we uh, develop our own political stances or take uh, uh, positions on moral issues a lot of times there, there's always going to be a, an emotional response there. And our uh, ability to rationalize allows us to retain that emotional response. 
we don't think of it as as an emotional position that we're taking because logic is involved. But uh, again, we have this emotion of this response, and then logic comes on top of it. So Jonathan Haidt, professor at NYU, has done a lot of interesting research looking at this in terms of this moral dumbfounding research, where we will have this, this very visceral reaction to something, and then again, the logic comes in afterwards to, to justify it and, and make us feel okay with it, or make it feel as if it was well thought out from the beginning. Mm. And, and do you think that's why when you look at some of the, the most well-known brands in the world, they're able to connect with people at Apple because they're able to, to tap into that emotive side so well, whereas I think a lot of companies maybe miss that when they just think about the product and what it can do on its own without the kind of story or emotive feeling behind that. Absolutely. So there's actually a lot of interesting research on how we perceive brands as well, which goes sort of beyond beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's actually a good segue there. So there's a lot of interesting research, and this is Susan Fisk's work at Princeton, where we actually see brands as people and the same dimensions which we view humans on in terms of, of warmth and competence. This is her famous warmth competence model. We actually view brands as well. So within just a fraction of a second, a of something like three milliseconds of, of meeting somebody, you're already making judgments about their warmth and competence. And it turns out we do the same thing for brands. And the more warm and competent we view a brand, generally speaking, the more positive orientation we have towards that brand in general. And since this happens so instantaneously, it's not a, a logically derived uh, process by which we understand the brand as, as being warm and, and competent. Uh, this is so instantaneous that emotion plays a, a really, really huge role here. And to add to that, any salesperson listening should just underline that, warmth and competence, right? It's it, The research is based on brand, but it is 100% applicable to sales. As a salesperson, it, it, you just got the biggest life hack ever, which is everyone who meets a human thinks about a human in two different ways, warmth and competence. So much so that people think of brands that way, but let's zoom out, right? We're just talking about people to people here. Are you coming across warm? Yes or no? Are you coming across competent? Yes or no? And it's not as binary, but it's easy to make it binary to have this conversation. If you come across highly competent and cold, you're going to come across exactly that, cold, right? If you come across highly empathetic, but not competent, people might feel for you but if you're selling, you need to be competent. So you have to find that balance. You have to find that balance. But in general, high in competence scale, high in um, uh, oh, brain fart, high in empathy scale is how uh, that's one barometer to to reach for when you're in when you're in sales school. It's something that I think definitely works. Mm. You might have probably maybe answered my next question there, but if you have, it's, it's absolutely fine. I was, I, I'm curious from, from yourselves of, as to what you think, you know, particularly in this climate, you know, I don't like to dwell on it. I think a lot has been benefited from this climate in the world of sales. I think it's forced people to realize actually, do you know what, how we're selling now is how we should always sell, like being empathetic as you talked about there. Actually, you know, if you can't be empathetic at a time like this, you just can't be empathetic at all, I don't think, really, because everyone is going through the same kind of challenge. And I think um, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think salespeople and and people who might be building their own business can really focus on like one to two traits, habits or skills that that are important for them to be successful, not just now, but but in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think you you just said it perfectly there, Chris. If you can't be empathetic at a, at a time like this, then when can you be empathetic? And I think it's important to really break down what it means to be empathetic, really that mental process. And really when you dissect it, it really comes down to uh, coming to the person, coming to whether they're uh, in your sales funnel or, or really anybody on the street, where are they in their current state? Empathy really is the ability to mentalize, to create a mental model of what the person is experiencing. And in the, in the, in the version of, of um, emotional empathy, really coming to feel what they feel as well. And so this places a, a really important, uh, underlines a really important aspect of understanding the consumer, which is obviously a, a classic uh, axiom within in both sales and marketing. And that really needs to be extended. So it's not just knowing about them. It's really knowing what it's like to be them. And that's really where empathy comes in. And so a lot of this is, is attempted to do through demographic information. So we know this person is 35 and they have this job and this level of expendable income and they have a dog and they buy on petco.com, whatever the case may be. Um, but really this involves conversations. This involves uh, really trying to develop this empathetic muscle, which is a skill just like any skill. So you're able to pick up on is the person looking away? Are there subtleties in their body language? What are they telling me about their experience? And this is a, a, a skill which is actually trainable. And this is something that I think isn't emphasized quite enough. It's, it's easy for us to say, yes, be empathetic, but that is actually a mental ability that needs to be developed. Yeah, and not confused with sympathy, which a lot of people assume it and think, and therefore that's why it's given a bit of a a negative connotation i think when people look at that I, I always think when i think about empathy i think of the film inception when you kind of go into someone's dream and you can kind of see it from their point of view of exactly what's going on is how well are you able to paint that picture to bring it bring it back to them yeah absolutely yeah. and i think one one important thing to to highlight here as well is that empathy almost by definition can only be understood at an individual level so we could never say, hey, this, these, this group of uh, target consumers, we need to empathize with them. So empathy by definition exists on an individual level. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to have an empathetic approach because it doesn't scale. This is actually some research that Prince and I have done together in our own lab where we show pictures of or we, we uh, uh, expose participants to, to stories which either focus on a single individual carrying something out or a group of individuals carrying something out. And these vignettes serve as advertisements for products. And in all instances, really an overwhelming effect size, we see that individually driven narratives generate much more empathy than storylines which focus on a group. And this comes back to empathy really being an individually oriented type of mental process. So I can understand uh, maybe what you're feeling in this moment, Chris, when I'm, I'm looking at you, even through your, your digital pixels here on Zoom. Uh, but if I'm trying to look at a group of people, you really can't empathize simultaneously with a group of people. So it, it really needs to be individually calibrated. And I mean, that, that's a great point as well. Is we talk about this in the book quite a bit, is what empathy can do for communication, right? So before I go into how I've used this in my professional life, I just want to underline, yes, there's warmth, yes, there's competence, yes, there's empathy, but your brain also has a really good bullshit meter, right? So you can't do this if you don't genuinely, genuinely connect and engage. Empathy has got to be engaged, right? So with that said, this character-driven narrative behind empathy 
uh, it's really important for salespeople, right? So it's not just telling the story of Nike through LeBron James. It's telling the story of why your product is amazing, not through this company, this faceless company that did it, but through this particular person within that company who championed it, right? So, um, it, so, so being able to bring out the benefits, the features of your products in a way that is authentically attached to a single person. So uh, we did this at, um, at my previous company where we did money transfer. And money transfer is just numbers, numbers, spreadsheets. What's the rate? Go in, go out, right? It's very uh, cold in that sense. And to, way to humanize it, we found customers who are real customers who are using it in a very creative way. And we were able to tell an authentic, real story but you engage the listener's empathy, even if it's something so mathematical like currency exchange, by telling the story of an entrepreneur in Singapore or telling the story of a, a car importer in Canada, right? You tell the story to that one singular person and you highlight the, the different aspects of the product within that story and that immediately clicks in a different way. So as salespeople, you know, there's homework here. Sit down and think about all the success you've had in the past, which product that you're selling feature was highlighted to that success and how you can cultivate an authentic, don't bullshit, an authentic narrative around that. Mm, yeah. And what you've mentioned there is one of the, my favorite things and attributes I think that salespeople need to be great as a storytellers is, you know, it's, it's the way we, we naturally communicate really. Um, and it's the way we retain information. You know, it's not about what you tell someone, it's about what they remember. And I think a great way of, of understanding empathy and people being empathetic towards you is, being able to communicate in that manner. And I knew a, I used to work with a guy who was very quiet, very conservative salesperson, but all he ever did, every sentence started with, let me tell you about a time that, and it would just be stories, like constant stories. It was never like, you know, just a statement. It was, it was a story about this, a story about that. And he was able to sell effectively through it because he was able to build connection that way. And I, I found that fascinating, um, which is a whole different topic as well from what we're talking about now, but oh, it's so yeah. interesting. But it's not, Chris. I mean, it's it, it, the thing is that we 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 go crazy deep into. We actually dedicated an entire chapter in Blindside to storytelling, and and we actually had three chapters to storytelling. We're like, dude, this book is going to turn into just a storytelling neuroscience book. So we have to cut so much of that out. But um, but the biggest thing is storytelling just sounds like something we innately know because that's how we communicated before we knew how to write down words, right? The history of bards and storytellers, of course. However. To dissect storytelling is fun. To dissect storytelling as a marketer and a, and, a, and, a, and a neuroscientist is so much fun. Like we just nerd out there. So um, but one of the things that we talk about in, in, in the book is connecting that empathy piece. Like what is this ambiguous yet familiar thing that is storytelling? Well, for one, it's empathy, right? Another, it's communicating a message. In a way, it's kind of like a candy wrapper with, with medicine in it, right? It's like a delicious halls that taste like smoothie and yet there's medicine in it. There's a lesson in it. There's a moral in there, right? Um, but then there's really amazing research that comes out of Paul Bloom about, about essentialism. And I'll, I'll let Matt explain it and then I'll, I'll connect it afterwards. Yeah, so this is this really interesting theory which really comes from this observation that we tend to value original objects much more than their identical counterparts. So you think about the Mona Lisa, which is 
priceless. We couldn't even put a price tag on it if we tried. It's trillions of dollars. Uh, but you have a replica, and, and replica artists are, are really, really, really good. You have actual art historians that can really have a difficult time telling the difference. So it's almost identical particle for particle. And yet if you're told it's a replica, it's what, $50, $100 framed? And so Paul Bloom and, uh, and Bruce Hood have done some really interesting research sort of looking at why this is. Why do we value the original piece of art so much more than we value a, a physical replica? And it's because we have a tendency as humans to see things as having a hidden essence. So that is the original Mona Lisa was created by Leonardo da Vinci. It has a, a origin story to it. It survived all of these centuries, et cetera. It has an essence which actually transcends its physical qualities. So it doesn't matter if you put this in a, a particle replicator and actually replicate it particle for particle. It's not about the physical quality. It's about the story, the hidden essence, the soul that we see in otherwise ordinary objects. And that's really an, an important and unappreciated consequence of storytelling, that a lot of this comes down to the origin story which brought this piece of work into existence. And a really interesting example, we talk about this in the book, is Banksy. Uh, Banksy's famous Red Balloon Girl, which uh, when it went up for auction, was simultaneously destroyed. And the value of that piece of art actually went up 170%. So you actually destroy the physical object, but the, the essence of it, one, wasn't destroyed because it's not about the physical uh, physical material of it. And now it has uh, a, a galvanized essence through an additional story. It's this very famous example of when Banksy pulled a prank and tried to destroy this, and now that is part of the essence. And its physical remains, its shreds, are actually worth much more than the original. And this is, at, 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 you know, from one perspective, a little bit shocking, right? So why do we value scraps of a piece of art more than the real art? But it's also pretty intuitive, because we all sort of see this within our own interactions as well. So if you were to have a uh, original jersey from your, your favorite football player, we'll, we'll talk about European football, not American football, Chris. So your, your favorite footballer of all time, uh, if that's an original jersey which you had, you'd value that so much more than an identical physical constituent replica that you got uh, in, in some other way. Even though if they're identical particle for particle, you still value the original so much more. And, and storytelling has a lot to do with really instantiating these deep essences into these otherwise ordinary objects. Mm. Yeah, I mean, imagine being a fine art salesperson and not being allowed to put up a description of the artwork at the gallery. You can't sell it, right? There's only so much you can get from the objective art itself, right? So it, it, that's the thing. You, you digest the art as much as you digest the description, the mindset of the of the painter when, when she painted it to the life she lived, to the place she lived it in. And now think about that as a salesperson, right? What is your essence? What is your product's essence? What is your company's essence? How are they aligned, right? And I think that's where, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that there's like a, uh, it's, like a it's like the cousin you love and hate relationship between marketing and sales, right? Especially in B2B, especially in B2B. The leads suck or you're not listening to me versus, well, you're not communicating these benefits. Well, story stitches that bridge a bit. 
essence stitches that bridge a bit, right? And that's hard because that isn't just a responsibility for sales or marketing or branding. It's sort of, it's got to be uniform. It's got to be singular. And once you are able to communicate that essence all the way from the CEO to the CMO, down to the head of sales, down to the person in the front line making the first sale, that's essentialism applied to sales. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting there on those points. So to, to on, on the back of that point, I suppose, Prince, for, for mm-hmm. people listening to this that are in the world of sales or have their own business, what are, what are your thoughts on like two or three things that people can take away from, obviously, as we talked about, this is such a big topic and it's, we can't cover everything right now, but if I'm listening to this, two or three things I can start to take away from neuroselling that I can implement within my day-to-day sales process and activity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is understanding empathy and creating a character-driven narrative. We mentioned it earlier. It is so important. It's worth mentioning again. Okay. Um, People understand stories. People understand stories told through a single character more than anything else. doesn't matter all the logic you put in there. Secondly, um, automatic versus manual, right? What decision-making mode is your customer in and what information you can calibrate based on that mode? Are they in highly logical, deliberate mode? Then you better hit them with those facts. Are they in more emotional, reactive mode? Then you should hit them with that, uh, hit them with a piece of information that resonates with that, okay? Uh, One thing we haven't had a chance to talk about is neural coupling. Um, Matt, you want to explain the science before I I give the third tip out to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually born of some research that I had the opportunity to be involved in when I was in graduate school as as a PhD student. And really, this research tried to delve into what is communication at the level of the brain. So when I'm able to say something and you're able to understand it, what actually does that process look like? And the overarching result here is that communication is really a process of painting a picture in somebody's head. So when I have a piece of information and I'm holding that in my mind, this can be anything. This can be uh, my favorite soccer game I've ever watched. This could be uh, thinking about if I'm going to invest in the stock market. This could be I ate a delicious breakfast and I really, really want to communicate how delicious and wonderful this breakfast is. There's a mental representation which is synonymous with that imagery and, and that semantic content. There's a constellation of neural activity which represents that. And what our research showed with using fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allows you to eavesdrop on the brain, what this research showed is that the better I'm able to inculcate that constellation of neural activity into the person I am talking to, i.e. how similar does the listener's brain look to mine as the speaker, the better communication has taken place. And the more accurate the communication is, the better the understanding is. And so overarchingly, the, the general lesson here is that if I'm, if I'm to make a, a, an effortful, uh, accurate communication, I'm able to send an accurate message, it's my job as the speaker to inculcate that same brain activation, which I have conjured up in my own head, that same constellation of neural activity into the head of the person I am speaking to. And we know from 
now countless fMRI experiments, some of which I've been a part of, that the better I'm able to do this as a speaker, the better the listener is able to understand this. And this really gets at this, this concept of neurocoupling, which seems to be really at the root of making all communication possible. Mm. And as a salesperson, it's really communication is down to a game of Tetris. You got to package what you're saying in a way that it fits what the listener is receiving. And that is essentially the concept of neural coupling, right? Um, research has shown that the better I'm able to do that, the more you'll remember the information, the more you understand the information. Okay. So um, how will you mentally align with the customer when it comes to communicating? That's my third tip. And the way to do it without turning into a mimicking monkey is to practice neural coupling. And I guess this is the fourth tip. It really shouldn't be a fourth tip. It should just be overall, our brains have a bullshit meter. So everything I'm saying, it has to pass the bullshit meter, right? So you have to authentically connect, but you have to neurally couple. So if the person uses the word puzzled instead of frustration, well, feel their frustration, feel their puzzlement and use the word puzzled back at them, right? Um, if the person uh, is gesticulating in a particular way, well, without, again, turning into a mimicking monkey, if you are able to match a bit of that energy, you are able to connect with them, right? And that's, it takes practice. It takes practice. And I'll be honest, some of the best salespeople do this innately. And I'm sure you've come across that, Chris. I'm sure some of the listeners are one of those people. Some people are naturally able to attune to that. And that's what's happening. And it's, you don't have to be a salesperson. You're left in a room full of people with, have, with a specific accent. You, if you're in there long enough, you might walk away with a hint of that accent, right? Your body, you're innately going to want to connect with people, right? Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, so just, just to add on to that, Chris, so what Prince is describing is a process which does happen to us when we're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It happens to us naturally, and this is called proactive alignment. This is research that has been fleshed out by a pair of Scottish linguists, Martin Pickering, uh, Martin Pickering and Simon Gerard. And they've done these really interesting experiments where they just have two people talk. And one of the people is actually a confederate of the experiment. So both people or, or the participant of the, of the experiment thinks that they're just having this conversation with another experiment, but one is actually a, a confederate of the research team. And they engage in conversation, they're talking about this and that, and then the confederate has instructions about five minutes through to maybe lean back in their chair a little bit or cross their arms or start speaking a little bit faster. And what they found is that whatever the confederate does, chances are within two to three minutes, the person they're talking to will do the same thing. So if the confederate crosses their arm within two minutes, the participant will cross their arms in conversation as well. If the confederate speeds up their speech rate to talk really, really, really fast, the participant who's speaking to him or her will actually mirror that as well. So this is a process that we do naturally call proactive alignment. And this is something that I think really great communicators have just naturally converged on. So chances are they probably haven't read the linguistic literature and, and the neuro-linguistic literature, uh, but they just have done this innately. And great salespeople have done this innately as well. And uh, further, this has found that the more that we're able to proactively align, we're using language in a way that the person most utilizes themselves. So even if we're all speaking the same actual language, we're all speaking English, we all use language slightly differently. 
So we have slightly different toes, slightly different accents, slightly different uh, speech rates, slightly different tone in our voice. And when we proactively align, we're converging onto a shared medium, which we both can communicate most effectively, which facilitates neurocoupling, facilitates this process of me putting my ideas directly in your head. And now we're using a, a shared common medium to be able to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, to, to add to your points, which I think are all relevant, what I think of what I find most practical that, that salespeople can really take from neuroselling is selling change, is understanding the two sides of the brain from the prime on the rational, seeking novelty versus seeking familiarity, and, and how you combat both of those things and appease them. And I found it fascinating when I came across the Maya principle which is most advanced yet acceptable with the guy Raymond Lowry who, who came up with this concept is that if something is, is too far detached from familiar, we'll reject it because we can't quite comprehend how that fits into what's going on within our current world. And I think, you know, particularly within sales and the way we're evolving our products and service of what's coming out is we've got to be very careful when there is something sort of new is how do you make it familiar? And in a world of, quite a noisy marketplace when something is familiar how do you make it surprising which i love the talk around the familiar surprise as well which which kind of links into that and there's some great examples with the newton tablet that came out in 93 from apple and was discontinued in 98 and google glass where it was just so far removed from what people were used to it's like well how do i how do i what do i do with this like where does this fit into my routine and I, you see from that like apple learned from that with the evolution of the ipod after as to how to do it so you know, when I talk about this topic with people, I, I talk about when you are looking about this new world and sales is all about going, look at all this great stuff you can do that you can't do now. It's still giving people that familiar element to go, well, hang on a second, these three or four things you can still do. So it's fine. Like this is what you're not, this is what you're used to. Yeah, we we cover that in the book. We 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 take that principle and we build on it. We talk about just why our brains like what's familiar and safe and why our brains like novelty, and why this oxymoron exists, and how to deal with it in the consumer world, right? Um, so you see this bridged out. Uh, I forget what chapter number it is. But nonetheless, I agree with you. I think, I think how to apply that as a salesperson is tricky, right? Because it's, it's almost as if, because uh, so much of this stuff, there's a second person who's not in the room when you're trying to do a automatic versus manual response, when you're trying to do a, a new versus safe, right? But we don't have a live customer in front of us. It's just, you just need to know these things. You need to know these things so you can have them on deck and internalize them over time. That way, there's only, I mean, the three tactics that we just gave are really three neuroscientific principles applied to three aspects of sales, but there's so much more to it. And, 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 and really, I mean, I, th this is why I think having a, a neuro approach, Chris, to, to what you're doing is so cool. It really is because that rabbit hole goes deep, man. You know, you, you, you just start off thinking about communication, neural coupling, and then you end up at Maya or you end up at dual process theory, it just keeps going on there, but it's going to make you a better salesperson, you know? Um, and I, I, that was one of the things that Matt and I set out to do was, man, when we write this book, we don't want it to be about one concept for 300 pages, right? We, the challenge really is how many concepts can I cram into 300 pages, right? And, and, and we wrote this damn book because we wanted each chapter to feel like its own book. And I'm saying this not just to sell the book, but really, I wish I had this when I was starting off 
earlier on. I had to read a lot of abstracts, which, sorry, Matt, they like make my head hurt after a while. I got a limit to how, how many of those jargon heavy things I can, I can read because at the end of the day, I want the gist of it so I can apply it. So uh, you did a, such a good job of summarizing Maya and that's, that, is, that is the gist of it, but that rabbit hole goes deep. And, and I think when you realize how far that goes in our affinity towards likeness and novelty and how you can apply it, you eventually have to stitch those things together. Mm. So you, you've, you've referenced um, the book throughout. And of course, you know, it sounds, it sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting my copy and, and blitzing through it. For people that, yeah. that are listening to this that, that haven't read it, um, it would be great to maybe share a bit more of an overview as to like, who is it for? And maybe from, from yourselves, each of you, like one thing you think someone could get from this. If it was, I'm sure there's tons from it, but if someone's listening to this as a salesperson, what's one thing they can walk away with? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle that first. Uh, so the book is called Blindsight. And like I said earlier, it's written to have each chapter feel like its own book. The idea of behind it was it was, it was written for every person. What I mean by that is it's about consumerism, right? No matter how hard we try, we cannot escape it, right? Salespeople have an incentive to optimize for it. Marketers have an incentive to optimize for it. Consumers don't think about it that way, but ultimately we're buying stuff too, right? We don't live in a world where you're not going to buy stuff. So we wrote it in a way that anyone who picks it up should be able to understand it. Every single person. So it's not a textbook for marketing. It's not a textbook for sales, but we tried so damn hard to make it as approachable, but also rigorous. Like the references are through the roof. So you can, if you want to go, if you want to be the person who checks me in mass references, please do. There's so many of them. The biggest compliment is I read all your references, right? Um, so, so we wrote it for everyone, but we know that it's going to have a much more even conversation with marketers and salespeople. It's going to have, uh, hopefully give uh, understanding to marketing teams who don't all just know this because frankly, it's only the top shelf marketing teams that can hire a bunch of mats and princes to put all this stuff together that have it. And Coca-Cola's and Google's of the world have exactly that, right? They got a consumer behavior team. Most companies don't have a consumer behavior team. So this is, a, you can't keep marketing and selling without understanding the psychological impact of what you're marketing, how you're marketing it and how you're selling it. So this book will provide that. Now for salespeople, this is my one takeaway. My one takeaway is, this is a toolkit. There's not a lot of how-to because it's up to you to apply the how-to, right? You might already innately understand how to communicate with neural coupling, but you might have no idea what this dual process automatic versus manual thing is, which by the way, we've discussed maybe we've gone over maybe three max chapters in the book. So the one key takeaway is to have that mindset, and, 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 I'll, and I'll tip my hat to you, Chris, because you're already thinking this way, is to understand psychology before you turn it into sales. And that's what we get. You get 12 books in one that take all of that, and it's up to you to pick, cherry pick, which of these tools work best for you and your style of selling, and then apply it. Go out there and test it as much as you can. So that's, that's a big takeaway. One book really covering 12 really dense concepts written that you can digest it. Because I've always told Matt, don't talk like an abstract writer, talk like a normal person as if we're grabbing a beer. That's the biggest takeaway as a salesperson. I wish I had it earlier in my career. Go ahead, right. Matt. Yeah, I think Prince said it uh, really well. We did really write the book for everybody. So for marketers, there is a lot of application-rich content in there. So consumers are 
literally your customers and consumers are everybody. So as we better understand uh, human psychology, the brain, how we take in information, how we process it, how we learn from it, how we make decisions based on it, that is going to have a, a lot of great rich applications for sales and marketing. At the same time, we also wrote the book for the everyday consumer. So unless you are a hermit living off in the woods somewhere, you are a consumer. It is inescapable. And it's an element of ourselves that I don't think we think about as much as we possibly should. And this book is really written to provide that window into the human condition. We really have a, a difficulty introspecting and understanding the roots of our own decision-making and our own experiences. We know that our, our conscious ability to, to dive deep and understand that is limited. And so this book is really looking at the research which sort of takes the, the, the hood off and, and you're looking at underneath the hood at really what makes these decisions possible. So uh, on the marketing side, we do hope that uh, marketers will glean a lot of its, its insights and be able to apply this in an ethical way. And then for the everyday reader, that they understand their own consumerism a bit better, because I think it's a fascinating way to understand ourselves. Great. And one, one, our early feedback, because it's only been out for a couple of weeks, not, and, I'll, and I'll leave it with this, is we've had people apply it in ways we never expected. Um, there's an entrepreneur out of uh, uh, out of Argentina who just wrote in a giant blog post for us. Here's how I took everything in your book and I'm applying it to my life as an entrepreneur. Um, we've had random reviews online uh, where someone's a screenplay writer and is taking concepts from the book to tell better stories on screen. Um, we've had someone who uh, was recently researching the neuroscience of pain as a doctor, actual doctor in, in a hospital and find different perspective on it just because of the research on neuroscience of pain. And the biggest one has been a B2B entrepreneur who sells B2B products. And he's been able to outline specific email copy, subject copy, little things like that, that get in, get your foot in the door all the way to selling a hundred, $200,000 package for B2B marketing, right? So what's been crazy is to see all of these different applications. I think the most direct ones are definitely marketing and sales, 100%. But I never expect neuroscience and and and, and writing a book, uh, writing a screenplay to come out of our book. So, <laughs> so really, it really is this 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 sort of default toolkit, and most directly applied to sales, but it can be applied to a lot more aspects of your life. Great, great. Well, Matt and Prince, it's been a, a real pleasure today. Thank you so much for your your stories, which has been a topic in itself, and and insights as well. It's been a real pleasure. Thank cool. you so much for having us, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, You're welcome. It's been great. And, and aside from the book, which I'll include the show notes uh, for people listening, is there anywhere else that they can find you or connect with you or find out what's going on and what you're talking about? Yes. On Twitter and Instagram, PopNeuro, P-O-P-N-E-U-R-O. Just look up PopNeuro, uh, like Pop Psych, PopNeuro, and you'll find both Matt and I on there. We're, we're actively engaged and, and, and getting feedback every single day. So on Twitter... Uh, on LinkedIn, you can look up Prince Gooman um, and Matt Johnson. You have to shift through a lot of Matt Johnsons. Um, <laughs> if you just reach out to Pop Neuro, you can find both of us there. Yeah, probably the easiest thing is to check out our website and blog. So in addition to the book, we also have a weekly blog on various topics related to consumer behavior, and that can be found at popneuro.com. And all of our contact information, our Twitters, our socials, all of, all of our information is there as well. 
Perfect. Well, guys, thank you again. And for the listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Not Another Sales Podcast. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Hey, people. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Not Another Sales Podcast. If you want to find out more and connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn under Chris Hatfield, H-A-T-F-I-E-L-D, or on my website, www.com notanothersalesguy.com that's www.notanothersalesguy.com stay tuned in future for some courses and free content on there as well but for now have a good one and i'll catch you soon